Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello, everybody. This is Julie, and here we have episode 312 of Forgotten Classics, where I found two short stories I'd recorded and then forgotten about. There is no podcast highlight this week. And actually, there should have been an episode last week, but last Friday, which is when I usually get these together, we had just had the police ambush and killings in Dallas, which is where I live, and you know, it hit home in a way that doesn't happen when you live further away. I mean, you hear about the killings in Orlando, and you go, oh my gosh, that was so awful, but it's not right where you live. And there is something that's different that I just can't describe. We were all going around in a state of shock. So I just wasn't able to pull myself together, essentially. And um, now we just recently had these horrible killings in Nice, and I'm left going, what is wrong with people who do this? And there is no answer for that, really. There are myriad complex answers for each person and each act of evil. And I'm not excluding anyone by only mentioning these. I'm just saying these are the most recent two. And so what I can recommend is not a podcast, but a movie that a bunch of friends came over and watched last night. I cooked a meal, and it was the reminder that the evil acts of the world can't undo the acts of good that we do for each other even if it's having a meal and watching a movie together. This movie is Ush Bizin. I may have mentioned it here before, but I can't remember. Essentially, it's from 2004. It's Israeli. It's about a devout Orthodox Jewish husband and wife who are very poor. The Feast of Booths is coming up, and that's explained in the movie. And they desperately want the money so that they can build their booth, have the meals they should have to celebrate for the seven days of the festival, and have guests to entertain, which is part of the holiness of the festival. I don't know how to describe it other than this, except to say it is heartwarming, it's touching, it's sweet, it's a look at marriage that every husband and wife or son and daughter should have, It is a real reminder that when we get what we pray for, sometimes there's more to it than we think on the surface. And this makes it maybe sound light and fluffy. And it is on one hand light, but it is not fluffy. It is just wonderful. I highly recommend it. It soothed our souls, shall we say. And that's really all I could say about it, except to say either watch that or watch some other heartwarming movie with some friends. I will put a link for a review of this movie that I did on my Happy Catholic blog. It may give you a bit of a better sense of it. And also, it has four pieces of information that are very helpful to know going into the movie. So if you watch it, you may want to swing by there. So, Now, onto these short stories. I don't know why I forgot to ever post them. One is by Nathaniel Hawthorne. It is hilarious, called Mrs. Bullfrog, and it's not about a frog. The other is by Lord Dunsany, who, you know, writes these fantastical stories. 
Chubu and Shemish is the last one I read of his. This is not as lighthearted and whimsical as that, but it is whimsical in a different kind of a fantasy way. I don't know, it's just kind of haunting, but I love it. I enjoyed listening to them as I proved to them for you, and it was so long ago that I'd kind of forgotten some of the nuances. So I hope you enjoy them as much as I do. Let's dive in. Mrs. Bullfrog by Nathaniel Hawthorne It makes me melancholy to see how like fools some very sensible people act in the matter of choosing wives. They perplex their judgments by a most undue attention to little niceties of personal appearance, habits, disposition, and other trifles which concern nobody but the lady herself. An unhappy gentleman, resolving to wed nothing short of perfection, keeps his heart and hand till both get so old and withered that no tolerable woman will accept them. Now this is the very height of absurdity. A kind providence has so skillfully adapted sex to sex and the mass of individuals to each other that, with certain obvious exceptions, any male and female may be moderately happy in the married state. The true rule is to ascertain that the match is fundamentally a good one, and then to take it for granted that all minor objections, should there be such, will vanish, if you let them alone. Only put yourself beyond hazard as to the real basis of matrimonial bliss, and it is scarcely to be imagined what miracles in the way of reconciling smaller incongruities connubial love will effect. For my own part, I freely confess that in my bachelorship I was precisely such an overcurious simpleton as I now advise the reader not to be. My early habits had gifted me with a feminine sensibility and too exquisite refinement. I was the accomplished graduate of a dry goods store, where by dint of ministering to the whims of fine ladies and suiting silken hose to delicate limbs, and handling satins, ribbons, chintzes, calicoes, tapes, gauze, and cambric needles, I grew up a very ladylike sort of gentleman. It is not assuming too much to affirm that the ladies themselves were hardly so ladylike as Thomas Bullfrog. So painfully acute was my sense of female imperfection, and such varied excellence did I require in the woman whom I could love, that there was an awful risk of my getting no wife at all, or of being driven to perpetrate matrimony with my own image in the looking-glass. Besides the fundamental principle, already hinted at, I demanded the fresh bloom of youth, pearly teeth, glossy ringlets, and the whole list of lovely items, with the utmost delicacy of habits and sentiments, a silken texture of mind, and above all, a virgin heart. In a word, if a young angel, just from paradise, yet dressed in earthly fashion, had come and offered me her hand, it is by no means certain that I should have taken it. There was every chance of my becoming a most miserable old bachelor, when by the best luck in the world I made a journey into another state, and was smitten by, and smote again, and wooed, won, and married the present Mrs. Bullfrog, all in the space of a fortnight. 
Owing to these extempore measures, I not only gave my bride credit for certain perfections, which have not as yet come to light, but also overlooked a few trifling defects, which, however, glimmered on my perception long before the close of the honeymoon. Yet, as there was no mistake about the fundamental principle aforesaid, I soon learned, as it will be seen, to estimate Mrs. Bullfrog's deficiencies and superfluities at exactly their proper value. The same morning that Mrs. Bullfrog and I came together as a unit, we took two seats in the stagecoach and began our journey toward my place of business. There being no other passengers, we were as much alone and as free to give vent to our raptures as if I had hired a hack for the matrimonial jaunt. My bride looked charmingly in a green silk calash and riding habit of police cloth, and whenever her red lips parted with a smile, each tooth appeared like an inestimable pearl. Such was my passionate warmth that we had rattled out of the village, gentle reader, and were as lonely as Adam and Eve in paradise. I plead guilty to no less freedom than a kiss. The gentle eye of Mrs. Bullfrog scarcely rebuked me for the profanation. Emboldened by her indulgence, I threw back the calabash from her polished brow and suffered my fingers, white and delicate as her own, to stray among those dark and glossy curls which realized my daydreams of rich hair. "'My love,' said Mrs. Bullfrog tenderly, "'you will disarrange my curls.' "'Oh, no, my sweet Laura,' replied I, still playing with the glossy ringlet. "'Even your fair hand could not manage a curl more delicately than mine.' I propose myself the pleasure of doing up your hair in papers every evening at the same time with my own. Mr. Bullfrog, repeated she, you must not disarrange my curls. This was spoken in a more decided tone than I had happened to hear, until then, from my gentlest of all gentle brides. At the same time she put up her hand and took mine prisoner, but merely drew it away from the forbidden ringlet and then immediately released it. Now, I am a fidgety little man and always love to have something in my fingers, so that being debarred from my wife's curls, I looked about me for any other plaything. On the front seat of the coach, there was one of those small baskets in which traveling ladies, who are too delicate to appear at a public table, generally carry a supply of gingerbread, biscuits and cheese, cold ham, and other light refreshments, merely to sustain nature to the journey's end. Such an airy diet will sometimes keep them in pretty good flesh for a week together. Laying hold of this same little basket, I thrust my hand under the newspaper with which it was carefully covered. "'What's this, my dear?' cried I, for the black neck of a bottle had popped out of the basket." "'A bottle of Calidor, Mr. Bullfrog,' said my wife, coolly taking the basket from my hands and replacing it on the front seat. There was no possibility of doubting my wife's word, but I never knew genuine Calidor, such as I use for my own complexion, to smell so much like cherry brandy.' I was about to express my fears that the lotion would injure her skin when an accident occurred which threatened more than a skin-deep injury. 
Our Jehu had carelessly driven over a heap of gravel and fairly capsized the coach, with the wheels in the air and our heels where our heads should have been. What became of my wits I cannot imagine. They have always had a perverse trick of deserting me just when they were most needed, but it so chanced that in the confusion of our overthrow I quite forgot that there was a Mrs. Bullfrog in the world. Like many men's wives, the good lady served her husband as a stepping-stone. I had scrambled out of the coach and was instinctively settling my cravat when somebody brushed roughly by me and I heard a smart thwack upon the coachman's ear. "'Take that, you villain!' cried a strange, hoarse voice. "'You have ruined me, you blackguard. I shall never be the woman I have been!' And then came a second thwack, aimed at the driver's other ear, but which missed it and hit him on the nose, causing a terrible effusion of blood. Now who or what fearful apparition was inflicting this punishment on the poor fellow remained an impenetrable mystery to me. The blows were given by a person of grisly aspect, with a head almost bald, and sunken cheeks apparently of the feminine gender, though hardly to be classed in the gentler sex. There being no teeth to modulate the voice, it had a mumbled fierceness, not passionate, but stern, which absolutely made me quiver like a calf's foot jelly. Who could the phantom be? The most awful circumstance of the affair is yet to be told, for this ogre, or whatever it was, had a riding habit like Mrs. Bullfrog's, and also a green silk calash, dangling down her back by strings. In my terror and turmoil of mind, I could imagine nothing less than that the old Nick at the moment of our overturn had annihilated my wife and jumped into her petticoats. This idea seemed the more probable, since I could nowhere perceive Mrs. Bullfrog alive, nor, though I looked very sharp about the coach, could I detect any traces of that beloved woman's dead body. There would have been a comfort in giving her a Christian funeral." "'Come, sir, bestir yourself. Help this rascal to set up the coach,' said the hobgoblin to me, then with a terrific screech to three countrymen at a distance. "'Here, you fellows! Ain't you ashamed to stand off when a poor woman's in distress?' The countrymen, instead of fleeing for their lives, came running at a full speed and laid hold of the topsy-turvy coach. I also, though a small-sized man, went to work like a son of Anak. The coachman, too, with the blood still streaming from his nose, tugged and toiled most manfully, dreading, doubtless, that the next blow might break his head. And yet, bemauled as the poor fellow had been, he seemed to glance at me with an eye of pity, as if my case were more deplorable than his. But I cherished a hope that all would turn out a dream, and seized the opportunity as we raised the coach to jam two of my fingers under the wheel, trusting that the pain would awaken me. "'Why, here we are, all to rights again,' exclaimed a sweet voice behind. "'Thank you for your assistance, gentlemen. My dear Mr. Bullfrog, how you perspire. Do let me wipe your face. Don't take this little accident too much to heart, good driver.' We ought to be thankful that none of our necks are broke. We might have spared one neck out of the three, muttered the driver, rubbing his ear and pulling his nose, to ascertain whether he had been cuffed or not. Why, the woman's a witch! 
I fear the reader will not believe, yet it is positively a fact, that there stood Mrs. Bullfrog with her glossy ringlets curling on her brow, and two rows of orient pearls gleaming between her parted lips, which wore a most angelic smile. She had regained her writing habit and calash from the grisly phantom, and was in all respects the lovely woman who had been sitting by my side at the instant of our overturn. How she had happened to disappear, and who had supplied her place, and whence did she now return were problems too naughty for me to solve. There stood my wife. There was the one thing certain among a heap of mysteries— Nothing remained but to help her into the coach and plod on, through the journey of the day and the journey of life, as comfortably as we could. As the driver closed the door upon us, I heard him whisper to the three countrymen, "'How do you suppose a fellow feels, shut up in a cage with a she-tiger?' "'Of course, <laughs> this query could have no reference to my situation. Yet, unreasonable as it may appear,' I confess that my feelings were not altogether so ecstatic as when I first called Mrs. Bullfrog mine. True, she was a sweet woman, and an angel of a wife. But what if a gorgon should return amid the transports of our connubial bliss and take the angel's place? I recollected the tale of a fairy who half the time was a beautiful woman and half the time a hideous monster— had I taken that very fairy to be the wife of my bosom? While such whims and chimeras were flitting across my fancy, I began to look askance at Mrs. Bullfrog, almost expecting that the transformation would be wrought before my eyes. To divert my mind, I took up the newspaper which had covered the little basket of refreshments, and which now lay at the bottom of the coach, blushing with a deep red stain, and emitting a potent spiritous fume, from the contents of the broken bottle of Calidor. The paper was two or three years old, but contained an article of several columns in which I soon grew wonderfully interested. It was the report of a trial for breach of promise of marriage, giving the testimony in full with fervid extracts from both the gentlemen's and ladies' amatory correspondence. The deserted damsel had personally appeared in court, and had borne energetic evidence to her lover's perfidy and the strength of her blighted affections. On the defendant's part, there had been an attempt, though insufficiently sustained, to blast the plaintiff's character and a plea in mitigation of damages on account of her unamiable temper. A horrible idea was suggested by the lady's name. Madam, said I, holding the newspaper before Mrs. Bullfrog's eyes, and though a small, delicate, and thin-visaged man, I feel assured that I looked very terrific. Madam, repeated I through my shut teeth, were you the plaintiff in this cause? Oh, my dear Mr. Bullfrog, replied my wife sweetly, I thought all the world knew that. Horror! Horror! exclaimed I, sinking back on the seat. Covering my face with both hands, I emitted a deep and death-like groan, as if my tormented soul were rending me asunder. I, the most exquisitely fastidious of men, and whose wife was to have been the most delicate and refined of women, with all the fresh dewdrops glittering on her virgin rosebud of a heart.
I thought of the glossy ringlets and pearly teeth. I thought of the calador. I thought of the coachman's bruised ear and bloody nose. I thought of the tender love secrets which she had whispered to the judge and jury and a thousand tittering auditors and gave another groan. Mr. Bullfrog, said my wife. As I made no reply, she gently took my hands within her own, removed them from my face, and fixed her eyes steadfastly on mine. Mr. Bullfrog, she said, not unkindly, yet with all the decision of her strong character, let me advise you to overcome this foolish weakness and prove yourself to the best of your ability as good a husband as I will be a wife. You have discovered, perhaps, some little imperfections in your bride. Well, what did you expect? Women are not angels. If they were, they would go to heaven for the husbands, or at least be more difficult in their choice on earth. But why conceal those imperfections? interposed I tremulously. Now, my love, are you not a most unreasonable little man? said Mrs. Bullfrog, patting me on the cheek. Ought a woman to disclose her frailties earlier than the wedding day? Few husbands, I assure you, make the discovery in such good season, and still fewer complain that these trifles are concealed too long. Well, what a strange man you are. Oh, you are joking. But the suit for breach of promise, groaned I. Ah, and is that the rub? exclaimed my wife. Is it possible that you view that affair in an objectionable light? Mr. Bullfrog, I could never have dreamt it. Is it an objection that I have triumphantly defended myself against slander and vindicated my purity in a court of justice? Or do you complain because your wife has shown the proper spirit of a woman and punished the villain who trifled with her affections? But, persisted I, shrinking into a corner of the coach, however, for I did not know precisely how much contradiction the proper spirit of a woman would endure. But, my love, would it not have been more dignified to treat the villain with the silent contempt he merited? That is all very well, Mr. Bullfrog, said my wife slyly. But in that case, where would have been the five thousand dollars which are to stock your dry goods store? Mrs. Bullfrog, upon your honor, demanded I, as if my life hung upon her words, is there no mistake about those five thousand dollars? Upon my word and honor, there is none, replied she. The jury gave me every cent the rascal had, and I have kept it all for my dear bullfrog. Then thou dear woman, cried I with an overwhelming gush of tenderness, let me fold thee to my heart. The basis of matrimonial bliss is secure, and all thy little defects and frailties are forgiven. Nay, since the result has been so fortunate, I rejoice at the wrongs which drove thee to this blessed lawsuit. Happy bullfrog that I am.
The Wonderful Window by Lord Dunsany The old man in the oriental-looking robe was being moved on by the police, and it was this that attracted to him, and the parcel under his arm, the attention of Mr. Sladen, whose livelihood was earned in the emporium of Messrs. Mergen and Chater, that is to say, in their establishment. Mr. Sladen had the reputation of being the silliest young man in business. A touch of romance, a mere suggestion of it, would send his eyes gazing away, as though the walls of the Emporium were of gossamer and London itself a myth, instead of attending to the customers. Merely the fact that the dirty piece of paper that wrapped the old man's parcel was covered with Arabic writing was enough to give Mr. Sladen the idea of romance and he followed until the little crowd fell off, and the stranger stopped by the curb and unwrapped his parcel and prepared to sell the thing that was inside it. It was a little window in old wood with small panes set in lead. It was not much more than a foot in breadth, and it was under two feet long. Mr. Sladen had never seen a window sold in the street, so he asked the price of it. "'Its price is all you possess.' said the old man. "'Where did you get it?' said Mr. Sladen, for it was a strange window. "'I gave all that I possessed for it in the streets of Baghdad.' "'Did you possess much?' said Mr. Sladen. "'I had all that I wanted,' he said, "'except this window.' "'It must be a good window,' said the young man. "'It is a magical window.' said the old one. I have only ten shillings on me, but I have fifteen and six at home. The old man thought for a while. Then twenty-five and sixpence is the price of the window, he said. It was only when the bargain was completed and the ten shillings paid and the strange old man was coming for his fifteen and six and to fit the magical window into his only room that it occurred to Mr. Sladen's mind that he did not want a window. And then they were at the door of the house in which he rented a room, and it seemed too late to explain. The stranger demanded privacy while he fitted up the window, so Mr. Sladen remained outside the door at the top of a little flight of creaky stairs. He heard no sound of hammering. And presently the strange old man came out with his faded yellow robe and his great beard and his eyes on far-off places. "'It is finished,' he said, and he and the young man parted. And whether he remained a spot of color and an anachronism in London, or whether he ever came again to Baghdad and what dark hands kept on the circulation of his twenty-five and six, Mr. Sladen never knew.' Mr. Sladen entered the bare-boarded room in which he slept and spent all his indoor hours between closing time and the hour at which Messrs. Mergen and Chater commenced. To the penates of so dingy a room, his neat frock coat must have been a continual wonder. Mr. Sladen took it off and folded it carefully, and there was the old man's window, rather high up in the wall. There had been no window in that wall hitherto, nor any ornament at all but a small cupboard. So when Mr. Sladen had put his frock coat safely away, he glanced through his new window. It was where his cupboard had been in which he kept his tea things. They were all standing on the table now. When Mr. Sladen glanced through his new window, it was late in a summer's evening, 
the butterflies some while ago would have closed their wings, though the bat would scarcely yet be drifting abroad. But this was in London. The shops were shut, and street lamps not yet lighted. Mr. Sladen rubbed his eyes, then rubbed the window. And still he saw a sky of blazing blue, and far, far down beneath him, so that no sound came up from it or smoke of chimneys, a medieval city set with towers, brown roofs and cobbled streets, and then white walls and buttresses, and beyond them bright green fields and tiny streams. On the towers archers lolled, and along the walls were pikemen, and now and then a wagon went down some old-world street and lumbered through the gateway and out to the country, and now and then a wagon drew up to the city from the mist that was rolling with evening over the fields. Sometimes folk put their heads out of lattice windows. Sometimes some idle troubadour seemed to sing, and nobody hurried or troubled about anything. Airy and dizzy though the distance was, for Mr. Sladen seemed higher above the city than any cathedral gargoyle, yet one clear detail he obtained as a clue. The banners floating from every tower over the idle archers had little golden dragons all over a pure white field. He heard motor buses roar by his other window. He heard the newsboys howling. Mr. Sladen grew dreamier than ever after that on the premises in the establishment of Messrs. Merchant and Chater. But in one matter he was wise and wakeful. He made continuous and careful inquiries about golden dragons on a white flag and talked to no one of his wonderful window. He came to know the flags of every king in Europe. He even dabbled in history. He made inquiries at shops that understood heraldry, but nowhere could he learn any trace of little dragons or on a field argent. And when it seemed that for him alone those golden dragons had fluttered, he came to love them as an exile in some desert might love the lilies of his home, or as a sick man might love swallows when he cannot easily live to another spring. As soon as Messrs. Merchant and Chater closed, Mr. Sladen used to go back to his dingy room and gaze through the wonderful window until it grew dark in the city, and the guard would go with a lantern around the ramparts, and the night came up like velvet, full of strange stars. Another clue he tried to obtain one night by jotting down the shapes of the constellations, but this led him no further, for they were unlike any that shone upon either hemisphere. Each day, as soon as he woke, he went first to the wonderful window, and there was the city, diminutive in the distance, all shining in the morning, and the golden dragons dancing in the sun, and the archers stretching themselves or swinging their arms on tops of windy towers. The window would not open, so that he never heard the songs that the troubadour sang down there beneath gilded balconies. He did not even hear the belfry's chimes though he saw the jackdaws routed every hour from their homes. And the first thing that he always did was to cast his eye round all the little towers that rose up from the ramparts to see that the little golden dragons were flying there on their flags. And when he saw them flaunting themselves on white folds from every tower against the marvelous deep blue of the sky, he dressed contentedly, and taking one last look, went off to his work with a glory in his mind. 
It would have been difficult for the customers of Messrs. Mergen and Chater to guess the precise ambition of Mr. Sladen as he walked before them in his neat frock coat. It was that he might be a man-at-arms or an archer in order to fight for the little gold dragons that flew on a white flag for an unknown king in an inaccessible city. At first, Mr. Sladen used to walk round and round the mean street that he lived in, but he gained no clue from that, and soon he noticed that quite different winds blew below his wonderful window from those that blew on the other side of the house. In August, the evenings began to grow shorter. This was the very remark that other employees made to him at the Emporium, so that he almost feared that they suspected his secret, and he had much less time for the wonderful window, for lights were few down there and they blinked out early. One morning in late August, just before he went to business, Mr. Slayton saw a company of pikemen running down the cobbled road toward the gateway of the medieval city, Golden Dragon City, he used to call it in his own mind, but he never spoke to anyone. One morning, late in August, just before he went to business, Mr. Sladen saw a company of pikemen running down the cobbled road toward the gateway of the medieval city. Golden Dragon City, he used to call it alone in his own mind, but he never spoke of it to anyone. The next thing he noticed was that the archers on the towers were talking a good deal together and handing round bundles of arrows in addition to the quivers that they wore. Heads were thrust out of windows more than usual. A woman ran out and called some children indoors. A knight rode down the street, and then more pikemen appeared along the walls, and all the jackdaws were in the air. In the street, no troubadour sang. Mr. Sladen took one look along the towers to see that the flags were flying, and all the golden dragons were streaming in the wind. Then he had to go to business. He took a bus back that evening and ran upstairs. Nothing seemed to be happening in Golden Dragon City, except a crowd in the cobbled street that led down to the gateway. The archers seemed to be reclining, as usual, lazily in their towers. Then a white flag went down with all its golden dragons. He did not see at first that all the archers were dead. The crowd was pouring toward him, toward the precipitous wall from which he looked. Men with a white flag covered with golden dragons were moving backward slowly. Men with another flag were pressing them, a flag on which there was one huge red bear. Another banner went down upon a tower. Then he saw it all. The golden dragons were being beaten. His little golden dragons... The men of the bear were coming under the window. Whatever he threw from that height would fall with terrific force. Fire irons, coal, his clock, whatever he had, he would fight for his little golden dragons yet. A flame broke out from one of the towers and licked the feet of a reclining archer. He did not stir. And now the alien standard was out of sight directly underneath. Mr. Sladen broke the panes of the wonderful window and wrenched away with a poker the lead that held them. Just as the glass broke, he saw a banner covered with golden dragons fluttering still, and then, as he drew back to hurl the poker, there came to him the scent of mysterious spices. And there was nothing there, not even the daylight, for behind the fragments of the wonderful window was nothing but the small cupboard in which he kept his tea things. 
And although Mr. Sladen is older now, and knows more of the world, and even has a business of his own, he has never been able to buy another such window, and has not ever since, either from books or men, heard any rumor at all of Golden Dragon City.